My name is Rashad. I'm Brandon. I'm Vidi. I'm Rihanna. And this, this is Learning Boldly. This is Learning Boldly. This is Learning Boldly. Welcome back to Learning Boldly, a series where current Texas Lutheran University students and alumni discuss their experiences as members of the Black community. The goal of this series is to inform, inspire, and empower members of the TLU community and beyond to continue a movement towards equality. This is episode three, an uphill battle. The sheer amount of systemic issues that the Black community faces can be overwhelming. While it is difficult to identify which problems are the most troubling, the three in this episode are some of the causes for worry that came up the most during our conversations with alumni. Part one, the criminal justice system. You already fit the description, period. Like you don't even have to do anything. You already fit the description. So don't put yourself out here to be in any trouble because they shoot first and ask questions later. Here is Councilman Jonathan Randall. You know, I was somebody who had a gun put on him by the police twice before I was 12. You know, the first time I had a gun put on me by the cops, I was, I was eight. Walking to, went to the, to the gas station. This was, I actually lived in Killeen at the time. My, my parents, my mom was in the military, so I was living in Killeen. There was mm-hmm. a gas station at the corner. I was, I was going to uh, get some milk for my mom. And uh, it was a couple of us walking. Cop pulls out, pulls up on us, guns drawn, no explanation, no nothing. Then it's, then it's like, oh, y'all aren't who we thought you were. Get in the car and, and, and leave. The second time I was, uh, me and my best friend at the time were walking. We walked out of my house and he lived two, two houses down. So it was my house, a house, and then his house. And forget, we were super excited because my mom just told me I could spend the night at his house. Granted, I was probably like nine or ten. And so, you know how, you know, kids are, we're super excited. You know, we get to spend, I'm get to spend a night at your house. And so we're like, we walk out of my house. We're like, hey, let's race back to your house and tell, so we go tell, you know, your mom that my mom said, yeah. So we we're racing from my house, literally, it's probably less than 50 yards. By the time we get to the, to the corner of his house, cops coming down across the, the street, hits his lights, jumps out the car, pulls his gun out, sees us running as soon as we're running from commit some kind of crime, right? Fortunately for mm-hmm. us, his his dad was in the garage. My stepdad was in the backyard, so they seen it. And mind you, both of them have over 20 years in the Army, so they just kind of walked on over. And, you know, if we'd have been where else, who knows how that ends for us? You know, mm-hmm. we're we're nine, nine or 10 years old at this time because, you know, being Black in America is is a crime. And for somebody, somebody like me, uh, who's also tall and i'm and, I, and I'm, I'm a large stature like i'm twice as as cautious because people won't see that i'm an elected official if, if i get pulled over coming from the gym and i have a hoop or in a, in a t-shirt they're just gonna see a big black man and, and i'm a threat to them and so i have to think about though that every time i leave the house you know that's that's probably the hardest reality that people who aren't black don't understand is the fear that we face every time we leave the house, the fear that our significant others and our mothers feel every time we leave the house. Like to this day, to this day, I kid you not, if I'm driving and I pass by a police officer, I am watching that officer in my rearview mirror never fails. And that that tells you about the trauma that that that, you know, that we experience in our community. Here's Sean Washington. Just being with those roommates, like driving back from like Walmart, you know, we're gonna go shopping, you know, for to get groceries. And uh, I remember we got pulled over. We're not speeding. I remember his car couldn't even go fast. You know, that was always the joke. Yeah. And so the pulled over immediately, like we're all terrified. I'm just gonna be honest. Like I'm, I'm 6'3", 280 pounds, I'm a big dude, right? That, like, you, I remember the driver, it was terrified. I remember we all had fear on our faces when we all looked at each other. I remember there was a female cop, actually. She came up. She's like, where are you guys going? You know, this, that, and other. And we're like, we're going back to campus. You know, we play football. You know, this, that, and other. And it was just like, just the right, you know, question after question. You know, she let us go. But that was one experience. And then being on campus with the campus police as well. 
you know, you would see other students, you know, white students could kind of go and come walking. And it was more like, hey, you make sure you're with somebody because you don't want to get stopped. And they're like, why are you on campus? Who are you? Are you a student here? You know, you're trying to like produce your student ID, but then you don't want to be putting your hands in your pockets. And they're like, what are you trying to do? So it was always, you know, which we still, you know, even myself being real conscious of about what time of day it is, if it's nighttime, where I'm going, if I'm by myself, uh, make sure I, you know, walk with even another black student. But hey, there's a couple of us going here for a reason. You know what I mean? It's not like I'm sneaking around this place, you know, so always trying to make sure they see me when I'm on campus, just from those couple of instances, you know, of, uh, you know, campus police versus, you know, Seguin PD as well. Yeah, I kind of had my own little uh, couple of experiences. The most of them have been recent, but I remember freshman year, I would, uh, the freshman year, I got an ID to several times and they just, you know, just out the blue, they'd come up and they look at me and say, you don't go here. I say, yeah, you know, I go here. I'm, I'm a freshman. That's probably why you don't know me. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what I was kind of saying with the whole buildup of over time. And they're like, oh, that's so-and-so. But like, like you said, that freshman year, man, I, I did, vividly, that was more where you would see that, you know, you're in the parking lot or whatever it might be, you know, it might be kind of nighttime and they're like, you know, here comes the campus PD. Where are you going? Who are you? And it's just like, yeah. going my friend's car, just like the other person two rows over is going to their car. Why are you asking me where I'm going? So. Exactly. Because most times when it was nighttime, there was, we were coming from practice or you know, something. Yep. yep. So there was always a big group. Yep. But, you know, that's just how it is sometimes. My most, the most experiences I've had with them have been uh, recent. And I would get the police called on me several times while I was, you know, outside playing basketball. And, you know, I wonder... I'd wonder why and who you know, was calling the <laughs> who was calling the police Correct. and what is it that I was doing. But uh, I think after after he he kept coming out there several times, he would just tell me like they just called the police. And I'm just doing my job, you know. So then it, it wasn't like I wasn't scared. It was just like I see him, he'd see me, he wave, and then he leave. Mm-hmm. So then. I even I even had the I had to change my mindset but like all oh, cops being bad. And I was like, you know, there's some people here that are actually calling them. I just don't know who or where. Like when I got there, you know, my upperclassmen who were who were look like me, they'd be like, Hey, you know, watch out, watch out for the police, you know what I'm saying? Being an RA, I've experienced myself not I wanna I don't wanna call it a harassment, but almost profiling when I'm doing a round and you come and stop me and you've seen my face before, but you come and stop me because it's nighttime. And the only reason I didn't have to pull out my ID is because you know that you recognize my face. Do I feel safe in that, in my community from which I would, I, I, I go to school there. I pretty much live there. Yeah. You know, so when you were there, like, and you experienced all of this, all this is going on and you have a community that puts a parade on for the police how would you feel in that moment? Like, I'm just curious. Here's Fernando Rover. You know, like I said, I was there during a lot of interesting times. I mean, like I said, I mentioned them in the beginning, right? And I remember, I remember feeling two things. I remember feeling a little stifled because I felt like I'm having to explain like why I feel the way I feel when it should, when it, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know. I just, like, I just feel like, when the whole situation happened with Mike Brown and Eric Garner and like, you know, Tamir Rice and like, you know, we were having this conversation and people were saying like, well, for example, for, for Tamir Rice, right. They were saying, well, I mean, BB guns resemble real guns. So, I mean, maybe they, maybe he thought he was armed and our initial reaction, minus reaction was the boy was 12 years old. And I feel mm-hmm. like as not, as a police officer, you were trained to DS, you should be trained to deescalate situations. You shouldn't yeah. feel threatened by a 12 year old boy. You know what I mean? So frustration is definitely one of those things I felt. I'm not, I mean, just to be a hundred percent transparent, yeah. but I felt like my mere presence being there and challenging their thinking was the better option than to just, cause a lot of my, a lot of my classmates that were my black classmates, they left. I mean, they, they transferred, they, they, they went to HBCU, like, which is fine. I mean, that's, that's, that's great. I mean, again, everybody has their own, prerogative when it comes to education. I said George Floyd, you know, the, the timing of 
George Floyd during the global pandemic forced the world to sit still. The reason why the conversations are happening at the rate that they're happening and the reason why all of these people who never spoke up before are being forced to speak is because nobody was able to hide behind their lives. You know, no, nobody was able to avoid the situation, you know, because they were, they were busy. You know, the whole world saw it and everybody knows. And so you were forced to either be silent, to speak, speak on the side of the oppressor or speak on the side of the oppressed. Those are your, those are your, choices. you have to, you have to acknowledge something, but you know, either, no matter what side of the fence you chose to be on, you still have to acknowledge that, that something happened. And so maybe, you know, what they've been saying for the last five years, maybe what they've been saying is legitimate. Maybe we need to see what we can do to, to help them. You know, we saw a man die on camera. It was, you know, a, a public lynching in a sense. And, you know, right, it, but it, it hurts to even talk about it, you know? But it wasn't anything new for us. Mm. It, was new, it was new for them. For us, it 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 triggered the same it's triggered the same trauma that we've been experiencing for most of our lives. It was just new for other people who yeah. had who who into the up until this point had never put themselves in the position to see it or refused to see. It. So in the in the black community, it was it was another it was another day in our lives. You know what I mean? They try to dehumanize when someone dies. They try to say, oh, you know, he was X, Y, and Z. You know, I, I think that as communities, as taxpaying citizens, you know, when someone's supposed to be a reflection of your local government and they're there to serve and protect and you see them killing members of the community, it's, yeah. it's surreal. No matter, no matter who or what you've done, our, the system is supposed to be set up to where you have your dignity, you have your humanity. You know, and they took they took both of them from that man. Mm-hmm. You know, with no with no recourse, no remorse. You know, no value for life at all. Because I mean, it, it goes back to how he viewed he how he viewed George Floyd. You know, what he saw when he looked through the lenses of his eyes told him that George Floyd was less of a human to deserve better treatment than what he was treated. The way the man died, this stretches three, 400 years, and it's been happening Absolutely. for centuries. And it's been Absolutely. happening for centuries. The question that I always raise to people, just imagine what was going on in the black community before the camera phone, was, mm. before the camera phone existed. Mm. So we've seen all of these televised deaths right over the last eight years. Just imagine the 50, 100 years prior to where, where a black man was killed or a black person was killed and they said, oh, well, he reached for my gun or he had a gun and there was never any, any, any kind of evidence that, that supported it. We just took those cops, those officers word for it. You know, there, yeah. there are plenty of black people that are incarcerated right now based off the word of a cop. But I definitely feel a responsibility, judging from some being somebody who's come from the upbringing that I had growing up in a single parent household, being on the other side of the criminal justice system and still being able to reach a reasonable portion of success by, by some people's standards. Um, I think I have a platform that requires me to speak. It requires me to, to vocalize because there, there are some young people who are coming up after me who haven't found their voice yet. And so when I think about the lack of progression that we've had as a country between the 60s, between the 60s and, and now, you have to look at the fact that we lost all of those leaders who were pushing the civil rights movement. So who, who was able to keep the conversation going? And then we look at mass incarceration. Like all of those, all of the people who were, who were supposed to be leading, who are supposed to be leading right now were either dead or they're in the in the criminal justice system and so yeah i have a responsibility to speak and and my job is to build the bridge for the next group of leaders here is ryan brown even when i was at tlu there were definitely places that i was told not to go to at night i think of one example in particular where i'm driving 123 highway 123 i think it's the 
from here to San Marcos. And if you, there are some spots there where you can breathe and the, it go, the speed limit goes from like 65 to like 20. And, and, they'll, and they'll, they'll try to get you. And they're posted right there. One time in those instances, I was coming from an event um, a little late at night and I got pulled over by the cops. In a perfect world, I think they wanted me to stop where there were no lights. I, you know, put my hazards on, drove all the way to a corner store where all the lights were on and got pulled over and, and had him pull me over there. He gave me a ticket, said, listen, if you would have just pulled over where there were no lights, I'm going to give you a ticket. For me, um, me pulling over at that to that corner store is probably the safest move I felt because who knows what would have happened. And you got cameras and other things at that corner store. So if anything were to have occurred, um, it was, it, you know, it was the presence was there. There was recordings, there were other things, and I, I had a sense of security. Um, I can tell you other people of other minorities, other ethnicities have had to do something like that. But that's something that I was always taught from, um, you know, from my mom. Just, you know, in situations like that, you know, keep pushing. And it's something that I, even as an officer in the United States Army, I still do today. When I'm driving cross country, I keep my uniform, my Army blues in hung up in the backseat of my car. So if I ever get pulled over, um, how I'm treated as a military officer is night and day how I'm treated as an African-American. And I'm not saying that it, it, it's uh, any type of constellation. But I will tell you when I get pulled over, I mean, I, I will give them my military ID and it gives some sense of entitlement because who knows what else would have occurred. But I will tell you just from my perspective, even, even at, at TLU during my time, there were places I didn't go at night. I had, I had my roommate was from that area, Stockdale. And I mean, he would even tell me, hey man, you may not want to go to this place or this place or that place. Um, there were certain bubbles I felt protected, but at the same time, I knew what places to go and what places not to go. So that's something that it seems even in you being at TLU still exists. The inequitable systems currently in place are often interconnected in ways that go back hundreds of years, which make them that much more difficult to dismantle. One of the biggest dominoes in this vicious cycle, and what many would argue is the most important issue, is up next. Part two, economics. Here is J. Anthony Guillory, PhD. Um, and then three months shy of graduating high school, we moved back to Dallas. The reason is uh, we were poor and we were moving around a lot because we were staying with extended family members. And uh, I left my home in Dallas to go to school. Uh, and I went home the summer between freshman and sophomore year, found out my mom had relapsed on uh, crack cocaine and she kicked me out the house. And fortunately, I was able to get financial aid, take some classes during the summer, and that afforded me the opportunity to live on campus, okay? And uh, so I had a certain chip on my shoulder while I was at TLU. Um, I was all over the place, man. I wanted to read as much as I could because I truly believe that my ticket out of the instability that is my background was figuring out a way to use my brain you think about all these kids that grow up in this system, in this environment, and then later down the road, they end up somewhere else that is not healthy, or they end up in our prison systems, stuff yeah. like that. Because the younger generation is our future. Here is Octavia Lewis. Whenever I went into training for CPS, my eyes were open. So like I said, I had went through and did probation. I knew that wasn't for me because that's a whole nother level of, I mean, it's part, we all know that there's like institutional racism and there's all these systems that are kind of set up against you. Probation's one of the worst ones. It was hard to work at. Um, and so I left that and I went and I was like, okay, I don't know how CPS is gonna work for me, but I'll try it out. Like they're not really understanding how deep this stuff goes and how many you know, kids that are minorities go into care, um, I mean the CPS, takes the parents' rights away and we keep them um, and they don't get adopted at. So they're learning, you know, how to survive and all this stuff pretty much on their own um, as they after they turn 18. Um, that was a big deal. A lot of these parents that we end up getting again um, that are raising their children were raised by us, by CPS, and really not raised at all, basically. 
Alicia Jones. I was in swim lessons and my mom went to aerobics class and I went to dance class and you know, like just those things. And so a lot of kids find themselves in the wrong environments, like doing the wrong things because there's not enough for them to occupy their time. It's like, uh, and then home life is crazy. So they're trying to find an outlet to get away from, from home. And so they find themselves in the mix of things that aren't going to be good for them. So I worry, you know, I have, I have boys that I've worked with that I worry about, like, man, if I turn on the news and you know, like if I could, what can, you know, like my goal is like, what can I do to help show them something different? Like, so that they get out of this environment. So there's, there's so many things that like these, these young people are dealing with and not having an appropriate outlet or appropriate support, you know, so they turn to the wrong things. Um, Empowernomics by Dr. Claude Anderson, he speaks on, you know, the black community having a strong economic base to be able to move forward in society um, and not settling for social wins like we've spoken about previously with the symbolism. So could you just kind of speak on how you, where you stand on that and the importance of having a strong economic base? Absolutely. So, I mean, everything comes down to, to, to economics, your finances. You look at how, how a community, community funded. It's, off, it's based off of either your property taxes or your um, commercial taxes, which is your, your, your sales tax. So if we don't have any, any businesses in our city, we're not generating any sales tax. If, if all we have are, are Section 8 housing or, or uh, federal funded houses, now we're not, we're not generating any, any property taxes. That's, and that's where, we, where cities are funded. And so we don't, we don't have any income coming in. And so when we look at you know, the issues that are within the, within the black community, when you talk about crime and education, they all start at, at the ec- economic system. It, it all starts with the, the lack of opportunity. And so we have to create jobs. We have to create homes. We have to put people, we have to teach people how to operate businesses. We have to create businesses so we can become self-sufficient. We talk about why the, the black dollar only stays in the black community for six hours. It's because when we do spend money in our communities, we're spending it for, with people who don't live in our community. So now they're taking our money and they're taking it back to their community. We don't have anybody that's in our community investing in our community where that dollar is going to circulate in, in our community. We're not putting money in black banks. We're not, we're not, we're not doing those things that, that create the, the, the economic equity that we need. But we haven't been given those opportunities either. We have to think about just how the system has held us back from ever owning businesses, you know, or buying homes. You know, it was all part of a bigger system that has kind of, that I'm not going to say kind of, that has set us back for decades. And so, you know, we talk about equity. Equity is put, giving us the resources that allows us to become equal. You can't have equality before you have equity. Mm-hmm. And so it, it starts there. And so, you know, we have to play catch up. You know, we're, 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 we're centuries behind on, and, and from the economic side, you know, from when they, when they freed the slaves, they didn't teach the slaves anything about economics. They just said, he out. Yeah. You know, they had, they had to, to go and try to figure things out, you know? And so, and then you look at our, our most successful communities, the Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, the moment that they started flourishing, what happened? It was destroyed. Stephanie Womack. One of the things that sticks with me from the protests of the 60s during the the civil rights movement, um, which was actually also a lot of people forget or they don't know that Martin wasn't just marching against racism. He was marching against poverty. He was marching for jobs. So the fact that he was doing that back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and we're still, still demanding jobs 
and equity. Um, equity is another word that I, is a word that I think people need to start using instead of equality, because equity is not just making everybody equal, of course, it's getting everybody to an equal footing, because it's not equality if we don't have the same education. It's not equality if you, you, you asked your dad for a loan to start a business and he gave you a million dollars. That's not equality. Here's Robert Hatcher. Everything we've been given legally has helped because without court cases, without laws, the free market has always tried to put their thumb over us. Mm -hmm. So desegregation, like civil, like hate crime penalties, all that stuff has helped us because as a society, we've proven that the moral compass is not to treat us as equals for whatever reason. I won't postulate as to why, but it's only when it becomes a law that we have some sustained benefit. And that's the sad part, right? For us to keep moving forward, we need more formalized law. We need a history of improved verdicts that are fair. We need more explicit protections and penalties written into the law at every level of government because the free market will not give it to us. After 300 years, they will not give it to us. I would say we need to adopt a system of some anonymization when it comes to resources. Specifically what I mean, it's not just gerrymandering for votes. It's how our school districts have consistently funneled money away out of black majority um, areas. Like in economics, they call it white flight, right? Yeah. Um, there have been systems used abroad to anonymize district performance um, in terms of like the demographic makeup or the income makeup so that the schools that have the lowest performance gets the most investment. I think for the financial sector, you see that we consistently get worse interest rates, worse loan deals, even though we bring the same credentials to the table. So that's the first thing, right? The second thing is, is that there, we, the diff, this information has to stop and has to be punished severely. The KKK is a terrorist group. They need to be declared that. Confederate monuments need to be taken down immediately. They're traitors to this country. You know, the politicizing of textbooks, especially here in Texas, since we are the number one textbook buyer in public school education, if you don't have more money, like Massachusetts or California, you get the Texas version of the textbook. Mm. That's got to stop. This whole, I don't know if you remember, but Texas tried to remove the word slavery from U.S. history books. Tried to call them like long-term servants or something. There needs to be a formal apology. I believe North Carolina is working on that. There's a town in North Carolina, I believe, that's working on a formal apology we call reparations. Mm. That's not that crazy. The Japanese got reparations and a formal apology for the internment camp, like atrocities they went through during World War II. But um, it's got to start there. Like, we are too soft for racist apologists and racist, like, adjacent individuals and organizations and policies. And that, that just can't exist anymore. But that's really kind of like the two or three things I see that would kind of really move things forward. Another way is, you know, you're, you're there at TOU right now getting your education is trying to get a nice job to where you can work with a nice company that understands these issues and they can help promote your voice even more because they've got, let's be real, the world's controlled with money, correct? They've got more resources than you ever could establish. Make sure you find one, I would say, that's true about it. You've got a lot of companies right now just diving in, Black Lives Matter or this, that, and other, and they're just doing it almost as a publicity stunt, right? Because, I mean, you end up grinding that out for a long time. You know, that becomes your almost like your second family. Here is Roderick Chambers. This is what I feel like when I look at my white colleagues with privilege. They have wealth. 
they have years of getting ahead of buildings and college and education and this real estate's passed down from kid to kid to kid. Black folks, we're not lazy. We are still years behind anybody all the time. They say George Floyd, all right? He, they say, okay, he, was, he gave a fake $20 bill. Okay, so if he had wealth and a job that didn't have the $20 bill, he wouldn't be there, right? Cool. That's the issue we should talk about, employment, generational wealth. Why is this man being killed over a $20 bill when we could have provided education and employment and job? That's the thing about people understand. A lot of these things is because we're still, we are trying to survive every single day with the rest of the world holding us down and question us why we don't go out and get a job because bills are behind. By the time I pay the three months of light bills that I'm behind, I'm still broke. I'm never going to get out this hole. I'm sorry if I can't call mom and dad to give me a trust fund. If they can't swoop down and pay this bill, can't do that. Sorry. I'm on my own. You know, my grandmother born in, uh, you know, 1926, she only had an eighth grade education. All right. So the whole goal was let me help my daughter, my mom, get a little bit further. I think that's what you need to get through high. That's her whole thing. Reading, writing, and arithmetic. That's what she said. We just help the next generation get a little bit further. That's my grandmother who had an eighth grade education. Somehow, some way she raised her own child and six other kids that were out there. She did it somehow. So the whole goal was just let me get you through high school. Just let me get you there. Because you can do it on your own. And so hopefully your kids will get to go to college or military. I tell people all the time, my dad and my grandfather grew up in North Carolina. People always like to say this whole military military family, I have every branch in the family covered. If you ask every one of them, my dad will tell you. I was in North Carolina. I moved to New York. I was getting in trouble. I couldn't afford to go to Syracuse. I wanted to go to school. I wanted to play baseball. Couldn't afford it. So guess what? Join the military. Why? They need to eat. <laughs> it's not patriotism. This, this is a thing of survival, you know? That's where we're at. We, we're just doing things to stay just over broke. People heard that job acronym all the time. And this is not, and people think like, yes, your, your parents were Irish immigrants. Yeah, but they also came over here with, a, with some money in their hands. They got some land. They had a start off. They didn't have people burning crosses and burning down your tobacco fields and stuff like that. They had unimpeded ability to grow generational wealth. They could buy land. They could sell land own buildings, build banks, buy stocks and bonds, everything else. Black folks, you watch the movie The Banker, we just barely got the ability to buy houses and, and, and have a bank in 1960s. Damn. <laughs> People don't realize 40, 50, 60 years ago, you know, it ain't, ain't too far ago. Meanwhile, you know, you had people coming in here in late 1800s, early 1900s, long time to build wealth bootleggers and stuff, royalty rights for music, when black folks couldn't sign contracts, couldn't read enough to get it, hustling through the music business? Yes. We've had a long, we, people have had much, much longer to build that. And they're not giving it up. People say, well, you can go out and buy land. How am I going to buy land in Texas when it's the same family that's had it for the last 15 generations? <laughs> <laughs> don't work like that. I wish it was simple as me going out here and start just to build some generational wealth, but it ain't, you know? This building's owned by the last step, this family who's had it for 35 years. How am I, how, how am I supposed to do this? You've had years to, to plant the roots down and to solidify. I, we haven't at all. So we're starting from scratch. It's hard because this takes an educational piece. It's, and it's more than one generation People think, okay, go to go take an online class about real estate. Not that simple. Wish it was, but it's not. There's nuances. There's nuances about every single thing we do. Land ownership, business, travel, stocks and bonds. There's nuances that people have the blueprint. That's what I tell folks all the time. I have a blueprint. It doesn't help me to hold on to the blueprint unless I share it. So guess what? I'm going to share it with those that felt just like me going through that process that you get through because no one was there for us, but we have a blueprint. I'm going to share it, but it, but it's taken until 2020 to get the damn blueprint out. I'm behind, you know, but at least there's one out there. Same thing with land ownership, anything. It's people with the blueprint. 
but you just have to be willing to share. And, when, and the people that you share it with, they in turn have to give back. It's a give and take thing. You just can't take the blueprint, but you got to be willing to help say, thank you for giving me the blueprint to do this. Let me help you out. And also may I share this blueprint with the next man who looks just like me. And that's how it gets done. All the different black businesses that are opening up, the different black support groups and stuff. And it, it's hard for you people to understand that it's taking some time. Taking some time. Please share the blueprint, please, with somebody. <laughs> I, I think that it's, it's tough because it's on one hand, it's I'm running the same race everybody else is running. They're like, oh, you know, everybody has the same opportunity. Everybody, you know, works and can get where they want to go. Like, I understand that. But at the same time, it's like you're running a race with a hundred pound backpack on of generational curses, generational trauma, all the things that you pass down to where when you get to that adult age, it's not only am I trying to move forward, but I'm also trying to shake this thing off that has been with me my entire life. I'm trying to, you know, shake this experience off that's been with me for this long. So just really trying to navigate both of those things and, you know, move forward at the same time. As these challenges are compounded over generations, we come to one of the least talked about, but certainly one of the most pressing hardships in the Black community. Part three, mental health. Here is Jennifer Sanders. Um, but I, I don't know if y'all are like me. Sometimes I'm like, I'm wiped out from all this. And I, this isn't a fight that I just started this year. You know what I mean? Like I was in grad school advocating for just, you know, researching redlining and just how that is still to this day impacting our communities. So sometimes you like, you're just tired. You're tired of having to always, for me, a lot of times being the sole representative of the black community, whether it be at school or in the workplace. But I found that even just starting in my small circle and having those conversations early about, you know, this is what our future is looking like. And so in moving forward, how do we create a space where we feel comfortable really talking to each other and having, having that dialogue for sure. And one other thing I would say is unplug. Unfortunately for me, because I'm in the news, I consume the news all the time. It's taxing, but if I wasn't, I would be unplugging from social media at times. I would be unplugging from the news uh, and just doing something for yourself, for your mental health, because I think a lot of times, especially a lot of our young Black men, their mental health is suffering and they're suffering in silence. And it's like, at some point, we got to make sure each other or you know, everyone's okay. We have to make sure that we are okay. Because if not, I don't know about y'all, but sometimes it's like, you just snap, you know? And then it's like hard to, to kind of reel it back in. So I think just making sure, checking in with each other, making sure our mental health is intact, making sure that if we need help, that we get it. And we always have someone to talk to, like have that friend, have that confidant that you can just say, you know, bro, like sis, it is a bad day today. Like I just need someone to vent to, to talk to, and making sure you have that in place because y'all, I don't think things are gonna get be getting any easier, especially now with everything that's going on. Like this is gonna be a, a rocky time ahead. The difference between you, Black Americans and African Americans who are truly from Africa and any other group. So I say for, you know, being Black American, it's when people are like, oh, uh, I'm from this country, I'm from that country. I can't pinpoint that. You know, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. I have no, uh, no history to fall back on, no lineage to fall back on. You know, other than, you know, all I know is that at some point, six, seven generations ago, my family was slaves and they did you know, X, Y, and Z, and here I am now. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, when you people are like, oh, immigrants come over here and they're able to accomplish so many more things than Black Americans are. It's, you know, you have a culture instilled in you. You have a history that you carry with you. And when you come into the United States, you come here for the main reason of prosperity. You know, you weren't just, you weren't brought here involuntarily. Like, even when you talk about, you know, the people of color in different groups, and minorities in general, we're the only group that's here involuntarily, right? You yeah. go back and look at it. We're the only people that were brought here and were asked to, you know, not even asked, we're told to, this is what you're gonna do, and this is what you are. Strip to your name, strip of your culture, strip of everything. Here's what you are, now here's your last name. And we all have last names that, where do they come from? 
Yeah. Yeah, I guarantee you that's not, you know, I don't have an African last name. I think that, especially in the black community, mental health was not even something that we acknowledged. It's just like, I don't know, I grew up in the church. So it was like, just pray about it, give it to Jesus. He go, it's a demon. He, you know, like all of that kind of stuff. And it was like, no, but, but I really feel like how I feel. And okay, I prayed about it, but I, I still feel this way. Um, and so I think that because now it, we're seeing the, the long-term effects of how mental health going untreated can, the effects that it can have on people, the effects that it can have on generations, like it's astronomical. And um, I was talking to my husband about a lot of times when, when you do grow up and you have like, something mental health issues or trauma or whatever and and you don't address it properly then it comes out as as you grow up as an adult it comes out in your relationships it comes out when you go to school or when you go to a job and you have like these unspoken things that you it's like I don't know why I just flipped the table over you know I don't know why you know, like I'm having these extreme reactions to things that shouldn't be that extreme. And then now that it's, you know, like so, so mental health is like trending for the, for the black community and we're all getting counseling now, then it's like, oh, that really, that situation, oh, wow. You know, and so it's like the light bulbs are starting to, to go off as parents if you see that your kids have dealt with seeing you have domestic violence or seeing you recover from drugs and alcohol or not having a father in the household or whatever, like instead of brushing those things under the rug and saying, Oh, they're kids. They don't know. It's like, yes, they do know. They know even it's very young. They can feel it. It's a, a presence. It's, you know, something that can, that can really affect them. And so it's like, start addressing those things so that when they become adults, young adults, that they don't have to then go to counseling, pay all this money to try to recover from things that you could have prevented. And it's, it's so important. And I'm like, white people have been doing this forever, you know, like forever. Billy and them been in counseling since they were four, you know, and and then it's like, and that's why they're thriving by the time they're, you know, 25, 30 years old, because they dealt with all those, you know, underlying issues and people of color, it's like, oh no, we, you know, we don't, we don't tell folks our business. We keep it, we keep it between us and, and Jesus and, and that's it. And it's like, no, that's not working. We, we need an outlet. We need a sounding board. So I look at it from this perspective from, you know, four or 500 year time span, it's never been dealt with. So the things that, you know, for me, it's my grandparents going through Jim Crow and civil rights and then, you know, their parents and great grandparents. So it's everything from slavery. It's like generational trauma that just keeps on getting passed down. I mean, the question I really have is how do we even attack that? There's just so much tacked on to it. We have to start somewhere. We have to be comfortable with being vulnerable. I think that people of color have learned how to be resilient and how to just persevere, fight through it, you know, and suppress all the, the things that, you know, how we really feel. Um, and so now it's like we're having to retrain our brains and our thought processes to be like, so it's okay for me to say that that hurt my feelings or it's okay for me to say that I've had these thoughts and that I've heard these voices um, and that nobody's going to judge me or think that I'm crazy and it's okay for me to share these things with a stranger and that be okay daniel searles phd licensed psychologist 
Um, but there's just something about, again, seeing someone that looks like you that allows people to feel a little bit more comfortable, especially because in our community, we just don't seek out mental health help like we need to and historically have just not. Yeah, yeah, because like just talking to you, I'm just like, hmm, you know, I'd really like to sit down and talk about my mental health. Mm-hmm. But before, if I'm no offense to a white psychologist, but I wouldn't really be because I come in with the mindset of like, there's only so much you can understand or do for me. And then, yeah, like, with, and then with that, it's like representation is a part of, it's a key too, but also the community stigmas. Like, I know for mm-hmm. me, like, my grandma would be like, why? Because I, I, I went, I did therapy. And my grandma was like, what are you doing? What are you doing that for? Like, you don't need to talk to nobody. If you need to talk about it, talk to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> or my dad, like, because he grew up on the east side of San Antonio and he was heavily involved in gang activities. And he was like, for a long time, like, I didn't even let myself cry. Mm-hmm. And like, so why would I talk about it? You know what I'm saying? And it's like, if you, like you said, representation is key, but also those community things that people tell their kids, like, you don't need to go to a counselor. Like, like you just don't need to talk about your feelings at all, you know, handle them, be a man about it or woman up, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like those stuff that people in our community tell us, because I know I've heard it a lot. And I know I, I got a lot of backlash from my family just for doing therapy. Like mm-hmm. I knew, I knew therapy was good only because I chose psychology as a major. Like if it was, if I never would have did like psychology, picked it up, like I probably would have never did therapy. I probably probably would have never saw value in it in the first place if I never would have learned about it. 100%. And, you know, I think that even though we're such a resilient people, that resilience can be like a double-edged sword, right? So we have the stereotype of the strong black woman, you know, don't cry, suck it up, you know, toughen up. And it's this idea that, you know, we can handle anything. We don't really need any help outside of, you know, our family or outside of people who are, you know, immediately, you know, close to us or within our own community. Um, But the reality is all of us need help. I mean, therapists have therapists. I, you know, like truly all of us really need help. Um, And I think that in addition to kind of that longstanding um, history of let's just not talk about issues outside of, Um, our community, outside of our family, that um, psychologists and mental health professionals are part of the system. You know, like talking to a psychologist or mental health professional, um, especially early on, like that might lead to something bad happening to the family. Um, You know, folks might find out, you know, if a kid at school talks to the school counselor, you know, Things may, things may happen, things may get out. Um, and I think that that is a, a piece and factor that, you know, obviously we can't change, like you know, we're, we're always part of the system, you know, because we're employed, uh, we need to make money and pay off these loans. Um, but, you know, I think it's a huge factor that makes it hard to actually open up because, you know, the system isn't trustworthy and hasn't proven itself trustworthy, even though we've taken a lot of steps to um, really do right by, you know, the black people who do reach out for help through therapy. So like, I'm sitting here thinking about it right now, just, it's almost like a two for one. So like going in and seeing a counselor that looks like you and just being like, you know, you're talking to somebody, not only do they understand where you're coming from, but it's like, like a grandma or auntie or something on that level. But at the same time, it's like, they're also able to give you a professional diagnosis and understand. I think that because maybe somebody, okay, so like if you have a white psychologist, like they're going by the book and maybe the book doesn't accurately depict me as a person. It helps. It helps. Like I know whenever I see like a therapist that I, I even feel more comfortable with a black therapist and, you know, I, I work with non-black therapists all the time. Like I know that they do good work and everything. However, like I know that it makes me feel a little bit more comfortable um, because I feel like that there are aspects of my experience that I won't have to over explain or go into detail or there's no hesitation. Um, as therapists, we're not, we're not judgmental. We're really unbiased. Um, so if I do, and I'm a psychologist and have been in school or was in school for forever and a day, you know, surely anybody else who doesn't have a doctorate um, in psychology would feel the same way too. But the main thing is that we just reach out and get help. Regardless of who's providing it, some help is better than no help. Um, 
and the more we can do to really let members of our community know that help is available and truly there's no sense in struggling if you don't have to struggle. Um, you know, use your resources to help you get further along um, faster than kind of slowing your pace and having to suffer in silence by yourself. But it's kind of hard for those people that grew up in those like environments to where, because I know for me, it's like you, even like even like going to therapy, like somebody was to find out that I like back back in younger days that I would do I was doing that is almost like a sign of weakness almost because like because you got to walk around like almost emotionless. Like I remember I went into a, a club in Houston and literally like I'm smiling with my friends, but when I get into the environment around like a group of people that who I don't know, like I had to put on this like facade of like this. I'm this angry black guy. But at the time I had to put that on face on because I'm protecting myself. And so when I think about that, it's like, if you gotta walk around like that all day, like what would make you think like, oh, I need to go to therapy. Like, like it's almost like I don't have time to really explore those emotions because in my environment, I have to be hard all the time. Absolutely. So. <laughs> emotions make you vulnerable. Like, you know, if you're in an environment that will capitalize on it looks like you're having a hard day you know i'm gonna mess with you or you know like it, it makes it really a, a risky thing to be open and vulnerable but at the same time because it's so risky think about how brave it is to say i know that it feels risky and i know that it is risky but i'm still going to do what i need to do for myself so even though and i think that's why like it's so backwards thinking about therapy as you know, you're being weak because you need help. I mean, you're basically saying, I need help and I understand the risk and I'm still gonna give myself help regardless of what may happen, you know, in the meantime. Like that takes such a level of bravery that I hope that the message around that really falls in line with how brave it is to say, I can't manage this by myself and you know, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get my life right. Thank you for listening to Learning Bowling. First, we would like to send our appreciation to everyone that was consulted for advice or agreed to be a guest on today's episode. Thank you for your time and your willingness to engage. Then we'd like to thank you, the listeners, for your continued support. We're now available basically everywhere podcasts are listened to. If we're not available where you would like to listen to podcasts, please let us know and we'll try to remedy that. Next, we extend a sincere note of gratitude to Dr. Chris Bollinger for his support and guidance throughout the making of this podcast. Also, a special thank you to Ryan Brown, Roderick Chambers, and Councilman Jonathan Randall for reaching out and offering thoughtful feedback and support that has improved the quality of the podcast. Learning Boldly is produced by TLU alumni Nick Hayes and Adam Swinney. Music by Nature Boy. If you're interested in showing support for BSU or would like to contact us, please feel free to email learningboldly at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you next time on episode four of Learning Boldly. It set the course for the rest of my life because what he said instilled in me some basic principle. And I still live by the A person should be judged by the content of character, not the color of their skin sweltering in that heat with the same mission, togetherness. It was awe-inspiring. Um, Dr. King was that kind of leader. He could say good morning and you thought, oh my God. We need that kind of leadership again and there, there you are, there you are. Young mm. people of today, there you are.